0: Welcome to this week's personal finance podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, and Henrietta Grimston, Relationship Manager at Seven Investment Management. Low interest rates from cash and bonds have pushed desperate investors into equity income, driving up the prices of these kinds of shares. But one income fund manager claims that if you look in the right places, you can find equity income shares on valuations not seen for 30 years. Kate, you recently met this manager
1: Who is he and where is he finding this bargain basement income? So it's Gervais Williams, who's manager of Diverse Income Trust. And what he's saying is that there's been this big kind of gap in valuations between, I guess, what we'd call the kind of sexy, uh, fast growth, small cap names like, for example, Boohoo and Fevertree. who have been rated up hugely in recent years and um, the kind of things that he likes, which are small, um, more illiquid uh, kind of recovery stocks. So maybe more value style and um, more income based kind of things. Okay, and why are these um, types of shares so cheap? Well, partly it's uncertainty over Brexit has meant that investors generally have been slightly less keen on the small cap uh, UK stocks, just based on fears about what might happen with trade barriers and things like that, and also impacts on the domestic economy. Obviously, UK small caps more exposed to that um so they've been less keen particularly to be in more illiquid small cap names which which are the kind of things he likes and uh, just been more keen on those on those shares which have demonstrated this really fast growth
0: Okay. Now, um, what are, um, these areas that are demonstrating the fast growth that, um, these other investors think are better? Uh,
1: well, in the small cap area, as I said, so it's these kind of high growth, um, names like Fever Tree. So that's the premium drinks or premium mixer company. Uh, also sites Blue Prism, uh, which is a software provider and boohoo.com, online retailer. Uh, and I guess elsewhere, you know, in the large cap space, obviously the FTSE 100 has been doing very, very well well post the Brexit vote um, and also Midcap's doing doing pretty well also. So it's kind of he's in that area I guess you could say the most unpopular bit of the market. Right it.
0: okay so has avoiding the popular areas and going into let's say um, things that do not look quite as good have they worked well for Divers Income Trust which is one of the funds that Jervis Williams runs?
1: Yes well it's um, That hasn't benefited him in the 2016 calendar year, it's certainly true. Um, He was not kind of overweight, the FTSE 100, which is the area which really rallied in 2016. Um, As a result, his share price fell, or Diverse Income Trust's share price, fell by uh, just under 1%. And that compares to FTSE All Share return of 16.8%. So obviously that's a pretty big difference. So is this always been bad for this trust? Well no as as I said so 2016 that was obviously an issue but on the longer term it's been a very strongly performing trust. Um, Over five years delivered a return of 140.6% and that compares to just under 70% for the FTSE all share. So he's a really good manager over the long term with a a great record at kind of choosing stocks.
0: Okay so generally he's good at getting things right over the long term. So what would be an
1: example of one of the companies that Jervis Williams does like? So Stobart Group would be one example. This is a um, infrastructure logistics business. So this is a company that he likes because it's one that has been really investing. And something that he is, is really talking about is the fact that a lot of stocks across the UK, small and mid and large cap, just aren't investing in their future and kind of paying out more from dividends. Um, so Stobart really has been investing. It's divested its core business in order to invest capital in biomass logistics and um, so for a while, that investment, you know, was not coming through in dividends. But now, in fact, um, its dividends have more than doubled since the corporate investment phase. So really an example of a stock which, you know, was looking kind of cheap on share price basis, but um, is now kind of really developed and and kind of compounding on that growth.
0: Okay. Now, um, we spoke about um, the types of smaller companies that Jervis Williams doesn't like. Is there anything else
1: that he's worried about at the moment? Well, he's generally concerned um, about that growing lack of dividend security and particularly among FTSE 100 companies. Uh, as said, obviously those have been performing very well, but he's concerned that more and more of those FTSE 100 revenues are being diverted towards dividends, and so in fact dividend cover is looking thinner and thinner. Uh, so that will be a problem if we do get another uh, recession. His his view is that if we do get another crash. Um, far more companies will go bust than than in the last financial crisis, and that is partly due to you know smaller buffers of safety, I guess, within within these companies. So, FTSE 100 is an area where where he is a bit concerned about, and as a result, he has this put option on the FTSE. Uh, which is essentially a hedge against the the FTSE, it means that if it does fall below a certain level, he'll make money. But uh, as long as the FTSE is rising, that is a cost to the fund.
0: OK. Um, Henrietta, um, would you agree that smaller companies are a better option for income than those in the FTSE 100 at the moment? I'd-
2: I think they offer slightly different characteristics. If you think about the sort of traditional stocks that people will go for for high dividend yielding, as you say, they generally are the larger companies. And actually, the outcome of that is you tend to be skewed into a smallish number of sectors. So you tend to look at things like utilities, telephone companies, um, financials. Moving f- sort of further down the scale in terms of size actually ends up with a portfolio which is far more diverse from a sector point of view. So that can be a big positive to investors. The other thing is that often those companies have better valuation so as well as the income that you're getting you also open up a greater potential for capital growth on the underlying stocks. The one I guess caution when you are going lower down the scale is you generally pick up a little bit more volatility with those stocks and they can also be a little bit more illiquid so that's something for investors to think about.
0: Okay now you said that smaller companies are particularly good for growth but with risks
2: ahead like Brexit can this still continue to be
0: a good area for
2: growth? I think the massive challenge at the moment is we don't know what Brexit looks like. You know, we've only just started the negotiations. Uh, It's going to be a good number of months before we understand specific sectors that might be hit hard by it. Um, I think it is fair to say, though, that generally small and medium-sized companies tend to be more domestically focused. So if we're looking at how the UK economy might fare as a result of the Brexit negotiations, there are naturally additional concerns there. But at the moment, it's probably too early to tell where the biggest issues are going to be.
0: Okay, well... Bearing that in mind then, might larger companies do better in and around the UK's departure from the European Union because they have a larger proportion of
2: overseas earnings? Certainly in terms of diversifications and the reliance upon, I guess, their business model, you could argue that they are better positioned. I think you also need to take into account where we think the pound's going to go. You know, The pound is heavily depressed at the moment um, and it's factoring in this so-called hard Brexit that we're all talking about. Actually, if we get a better, softer Brexit it, you know, that could be positive for a lot more of these smaller companies that are much more sensitive to the UK economy.
0: Okay. Now, are there any potentially vulnerable areas Um, but you'd suggest avoiding in and around the UK's departure from the European
2: Union. Well again I suppose it is a little bit too early to tell but I think things that investors need to have a look about is you know what sort of sectors are very reliant upon dealing with the EU. So let's talk about financials It's probably a very obvious one. At the larger end of the sector a lot of those companies rely upon EU passporting in order to sell their products across Europe so if that's something that we cannot secure as part of the negotiations that could be a big impact for those companies. Equally for the small financials that are probably much more exposed to the UK economy. Again, if it's a negative outcome for the UK economy, they could be quite sensitive. What I would encourage investors to look at is, is the individual business models of those companies. How, how much are they reliant upon trade with Europe? How much is being imported and exported? You know, Are they selling a product that's non-cyclical, so is in demand, irrespective of what phase the economy goes into? So I think that's more important at this stage.
0: Okay. And um, are there any other things investors can do to prepare their portfolios for potential volatility um, ahead?
2: Well, I guess the kind of traditional uh, ideas of spreading diversification around, so not being focused on just one market, not being focused on just one economy. So if there's an option for investors to look slightly more broader, looking overseas, obviously Europe itself, you have to take into account what impacts might be there. But, you know, it's a big world to invest in. So don't just be constrained by looking at the UK. The other thing is to look at other ideas as well. Yes, there is the fixed income market, although we know at the moment that comes with its own challenges. But you no, there are alternatives there are things such as gold which are traditional safe haven assets that if market volatility does increase people will flock to that as a safe haven product so don't don't constrain us too much on just looking at equities and fixed income okay
0: Thank you Henrietta some really helpful suggestions. Earlier this week, the UK financial regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, published the findings of a study it's been conducting on the asset management industry and the way it charges investors for funds. And the findings have been fairly damning. Kate, what are the main
1: findings of this report on fund fees? So the FCA has essentially said that the asset management industry is fairly opaque when it comes to fees, fairly confusing, and also pretty uncompetitive. So this includes talk of ongoing charges, the level of ongoing charges, the way that ongoing charges are disclosed, and and the kind of discrepancies between the way that funds disclose their fees. And uh, they've also talked a bit about performance fees as well, and and whether there is you know enough kind of outperformance to justify the fees that funds uh, levy.
0: What does the financial regulator propose to remedy this
1: problem? So the main thing they're proposing is this single ongoing charge figure. Um, So that was raised uh, when they produced these interim reports at the end of last year. And um, there's kind of a lot of discussion about how this might be done because it's it's quite complex. But they're proposing just one ongoing charge figure and it would include things like the uh, management fee and also trading costs. Uh, also, proposing consistent and standardised disclosure of costs, and that's for institutional funds. Uh, so everybody having to kind of report their fee in exactly the same way. But As I said, that that bit only for institutional.
0: So it wouldn't actually help you and me,
1: no, or our listeners, no.
0: So, no, okay, um, with that in mind, then these um, remedies that the financial regulator is proposing are they likely? To improve or resolve
1: the situation? Well, there's there's been a fair amount of criticism of them. Um, so critics are frustrated, for example, that the disclosure aspect doesn't relate to retail funds. Um, others have said it Retail doesn't...
0: funds being the ones that you and I and yes, perhaps our listeners would exactly. buy as opposed to pension funds. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so people are annoyed about that. Um, others have said that, you know, this doesn't go far enough. And we should say that those are only two remedies I've mentioned there out of. A fairly big list, I guess, uh, which does span other things like competitive pressure and um, platforms, you know, it's kind of a big list. But others saying that even that doesn't go far enough, actually, and the FCA needs to do more to tackle things like price collusion and failure to pass on economies of scale. So there's, there's kind of mixed feelings about it, I guess.
0: When they do come up something, when is the Financial
1: Conduct Authority likely to implement it? The next steps are that it needs to consult again on the remedies that it's come out with and uh, the final kind of rules, I guess, we won't see till um, at least next year.
2: Okay, Henrietta, do you think fund charges in the current form are fair and clear? I think it's fair to say that investors really struggle to understand exactly what it is that they're paying for when it comes to their investments. Yes, we do talk about an OCF, this ongoing charging figure, but as we've already mentioned, it doesn't include things such as transaction costs. I think also the way investors' uh, actual portfolios are built, there's a lot of complexity there. It's not just about the fund that you're buying. We've mentioned platforms, that's an additional cost. You might also be paying advice fees. So there's an awful lot of layers there. And it is very difficult as a client, I think, to sit down and understand exactly what your paying. One of the other criticisms in the report is that often that's expressed in a percentage term rather than a monetary value. So, you know, how much does that actually mean to an end investor when we go, yeah, great, you know, it's one and a half percent.
0: Okay. So do you think
2: the changes the Financial Conduct Authority is proposing will improve it? I think it will go some way to help. You know, the idea of including some sort of estimation of transaction costs and additional charges that aren't already displayed is is a positive step. For me, there's an additional thing that needs to come along with this, and it's a little bit of education for the investor as to why they are paying those costs. Yes, there are plenty of examples in the industry where there are some unfair charges, and, and we should be looking to bring those down for clients. But, you know, a really good example of that is the increase in popularity of passive funds. And I wonder how many investors actually understand that in time of stress in a passive investment, no investment manager is going to make any changes. Whereas if you pay that little bit more for an active manager, you would hope that somebody would make some changes in light of you know, prevailing market conditions. So it's as much about understanding what you're paying as why you're paying it. Okay. Now, of any other changes you'd like to see? I think just financial education as a whole for me is a, is a thing that I'm really interested and in, very passionate about. And we're terrible as an industry, I think, for making clients understand what it is that we're doing. We have a horrible amount of accurate Names we just don't make it that user-friendly and there are some things that are coming in next year as part of MIFID 2 which will help with some of these problems we need to be very careful as an industry that we don't just bombard clients with too much information and then don't make it very clear as to what it is they're looking at.
0: Okay now whatever changes are going to be made um, I think as Kate said aren't going to be implemented anytime soon so um, if you're an investor what can you do let's say over the
2: coming months, to try and rein in your fund charges. Well, I think the first thing you need to understand rather than just think about is how much are you paying? So go to your investment manager, ask them for clarity on exactly which fund class you are in and what are you paying. If you're also using a platform, which a lot of investors will be doing either to self-trade or via an advisor, make sure you understand the costs associated with that platform. You know, are there additional trading costs actually for buying and selling the funds themselves? And, you know, as with anything, when it comes to any sort of product you're using, shop around. If you're not happy that the one that you're using is, is of fair value, you know, there are other options out there. So make sure you explore and always ask questions.
0: OK, that is really helpful. Thank you, Henrietta. And you can see Kate's report with a roundup of a financial conduct authority's proposals in this week's magazine and the website. Choosing the right investments is a key part of making good returns, as is making sure you don't pay too much of them, as we've just been discussing. But an arguably even more important way to maximise your returns is to invest in the most tax-efficient way you can, something that differs from investor to investor depending on your personal circumstances. Henrietta, what's a key way for investors to maximise the tax efficiency of their investments? okay
2: so the government doesn't give you a huge amount for free but there are some really good tax incentives out there that investors actually irrespective of what you're buying should be using the absolute no-brainer one is your isa allowance even if you've got cash in a bank make sure that's going into the cash isa you know it's twenty thousand pounds a year you can put towards your isa and you can split that between cash and investment so if you want to have both you can have that option um, but also think about things like pensions you know we know that pensions are an increasing uh, concern should we say here in the uk with an aging population you know even if you're not working, you can still contribute a small amount each year to a pension. And anything that happens inside a pension is free of taxation at a personal level. So there are quite a lot of initiatives out there that you can use as an individual investor.
0: Okay, now you highlighted ISAs and pensions, which are probably the main tax allowances available to UK investors. But there's other ones available, aren't there? There are,
2: yes. So everyone also gets, at the moment, a five thousand pound dividend allowance. So your first five thousand pounds of dividends are tax free. That is going down to two thousand pounds next year, so less attractive in the next tax year. But for the moment, let's make use of the other allowance. You've also got a capital gains tax allowance, so you can make eleven thousand three hundred pounds worth of gains in the current tax year before you you pay any potential tax on that so it's one of those things if you don't use it it's lost So make sure in the, in the year that you are making use of that allowance as well. Okay now there's actually quite a few things from what you say. perhaps what's maybe
0: confusing is what's the order of priority in which you should use your
2: tax allowances? So it's going to depend partly on where you are in your life phase. I think that's fair to say. Um, So obviously, things like pensions, you have to accept that there's a lock up on that. So anything that you put into a pension, you're not going to be able to access until you're 55 at the earliest. So if access to money is a key thing for you, that's not necessarily going to be the right vehicle. So something like an ISA, whereby you can take your money out at any point in time, is clearly going to be more attractive. Um, Also, your own individual tax rate is going to sway whether some of these allowances make better sense for you. So, pensions you get a basic rate contribution on anything that you put into your pension but also if you're a higher rate taxpayer you can offset the additional tax through your tax return as well so it's as much thinking about where you are in life as also your own personal taxation circumstances.
0: I said there's obviously quite a few of allowances so Are there any types of investors for whom some of these allowances aren't necessary?
2: Yeah, so some of the, I would say some of the higher risk ones that exist. So there are things like venture capital trusts and enterprise investment schemes that offer some quite attractive taxation allowances. So you get 30% back on the value that you invest as part of an income tax offset. But these do come with much higher risks. They're generally much smaller, early stage companies. Um, They are quite illiquid. Um, These actually have initial lockups on them. So you can't sell the investments for a certain number of years. So that isn't practical to every investor and as with anything I would always think about if you're getting something more attractive whether that's a return or whether that's a tax benefit think about the additional risks that are involved with that generally the more attractive things there's a reason why.
0: Okay so let's say people who shouldn't use those what can they maybe do instead?
2: Well Making use of the basic ones are are the best place to start, you know, things like the ISA allowances. But also when we're thinking about husbands and wives, you know, quite often we see that the money is perhaps held in one of the the two spouses' names or it's held jointly, but actually they've got slightly different personal taxation circumstances. So just because one of you's used your CGT allowance doesn't necessarily mean the other person has, so make sure as a couple you're using both. Equally, if you do have different taxation rates, think about how much is in each of your names individually because it might be more favourable just to shift that allocation of assets between you and uh, you know these are fairly simple ways that people can make use of these allowances
0: okay and am i right in thinking that when husbands and wives pass to each, each other it doesn't it doesn't incur tax
2: correct or? yeah so there's okay. there's no taxation on an interspousal hmm. transfer it doesn't reset the book cost so the gain is still exactly the same gain but obviously it's making sure that you're using both of your allowances
0: okay some really helpful points thanks again That's all we've got time for today, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Henrietta Grimston, Relationship Manager at Seven Investment Management. You can read more on investing in smaller company equity income shares and the Financial Conduct Authority's recommendations on fund fees in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.